we ask you just to guide and lead us as we look at this section of scriptures tonight and that you will show us what you would want us to see from this. And we thank you for your love and care of us and that you have a plan for us. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Zechariah chapter 9, starting at verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the, be the rest thereof. When the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. And Hamath shall also border thereby Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out and he will smite her power in the sea and she shall be devoured with fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear, Gaza shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectation, shall be ashamed and the king shall perish from Gaza and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And the bastard shall dwell in Astrod and I will dwell in the pride of the Philistines and I will take away the blood of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth but he that remains, even he, shall be for our God, and he shall be for a governor of Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passes by, and because of him that turneth or returns, and no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for I have seen with my eyes." So we're going to look at this. God is talking about the judgments that are going to come upon these various cities and countries. Um, and it starts out, the burden of the word of the Lord. And, you know, kind of an interesting word, burden, when they, when they use that term, it is, it is just they are so heavy with what God wants to be spoken. All right, so uh, Ezekiel used that term. Uh, many of the minor prophets use the term burden and that they just could not help themselves. And if you've ever been, that, been in a place where God has just put something on your heart or in your mouth and you just couldn't help but say it, you, know, you were being forced to say it. Uh, we see that in Jeremiah. Jeremiah at one point said, tell God, I'm not gonna speak for you anymore. And the very next verse says, I couldn't, your word burned as a fire in my mouth and I couldn't help but speak. Uh, Jeremiah had been tired of being put into prison and cast into dungeons and, and worse. And he told God, I'm tired of it, I'm not doing it anymore. And then God still wouldn't let him not speak. Uh, but this word is going to go in the land of Hadrach. Now, Hadrach, we believe, is a city in Syria, but no one knows where. Uh, could be a king, could be a ruler. Uh, and Damascus shall be the rest thereof. When the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. So we're looking here at an end time prophecy when God says everybody's going to look at him. Uh, we know that there's been no period of time where people have looked to God completely. Uh, there has been more in, the, in recent years, but that's in certain places. But during the millennial kingdom, everybody's eyes will be on Jerusalem and will be looking to God and so we see this is what he's saying all these nations will be looking to God 
Now, as we go through this, there's kind of a mix between the future and, the <laughs> and more of a present tense for them. Um, and it says, and Hamath shall be bordered thereby. And Hamath is a city, if you look at your, the map that I've uh, provided here, Hamath is the city that's just above the big word Syria. All right. So we see that Hamath is going to be in that, in that border looking at them. And then he goes, Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. And if you <coughs> want to find Tyrus, Tyrus is not on this map, but it is just to the, let's see, what would it be? Uh, if you have the older map that I have, you Tyrus shows show, Tyre is Tyrus. Tyre is Cyrus. Uh, Tyre is Cyrus. Uh, Tyrus is the same place as Tyre. Yeah, that one. Yeah, up in the north. Yeah, kind of in the north po uh, north coast. It's uh, above the Sea of Galilee, up on the on the coastal side. Tyre was a very famous city in its time. It was a a city of merchants, a city of great naval and merchant naval. Uh, they weren't the greatest at the war of navy, but they had merchant navy and they could defend themselves on the, on the ocean side. Um, and so we see that, and then Zidon, which is, in that, is on, that, on the coast as well, uh, or up higher than, than Tyre. And both of these were very powerful cities. And these were very large merchant cities all the way up until the time of Alexander the Great conquering them. And uh, when Alexander the Great conquered them, Tyre decided that they were losing, the, their, city, their city walls were bore, boarded up. So they took and moved their entire city out to an island <laughs> Just a just a short distance off, you know, far enough that that uh, that Alexander the Great couldn't get to them. Alexander tried to get a navy together to go get them, and they sunk all of his ships. So he decided to take the old city of Tyre, and he took all the rocks of that city, and he made a causeway out to the island that Tyre had inhabited and conquered the conquered the city, uh, and. So this is the power of Tyrus, or Tyre, uh, and Zidon. And it says, Tyrus, in verse 3, Tyrus did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. And again, so we have this picture that they were extremely wealthy. They were so wealthy that they really didn't count money as worth anything. And this was what same description we had of Solomon. Solomon, it said, had so much so much silver that it was like the dust, you know, dust, uh, gold was not worth anything to him. Uh, matter of fact, if you remember, Solomon had so much gold that he made shields out of gold. He, he, he put gold over everything and didn't even think twice about it. It was not worth, an, worth anything. And uh, his dinner plates were gold. His serving plates were gold. Uh, and if it wasn't made out of gold, it was, you know, to him, it was just something you used. Uh, but this was a very famous city. And God says, even though she is that powerful, for in verse 4 says, Behold, 
The Lord will cast her out. He will smite her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured uh, with fire. So here we see the prophecy, uh, one of the many prophecies of Tyre being destroyed. Uh, there's another prophecy, I can't remember where, but it literally prophesied that, that she would move to sea and that they, her city would be made flat and they would dry nets on her, on her, on her shores. And that's exactly what happens in to the, even to this day. The fishermen dry their nets on the foundations of the old city's uh, streets, uh, walls. Um, but Tyre has very, been very famous um, in, in all of this. It was very strong, and it no longer exists as a, as a city because of its destruction when it rebelled against uh, Alexander the Great when he conquered that area. And then it goes on to say, Ashkelon shall see it, and Gaza shall see it. Now, Ashkelon and Gaza are both cities in uh, Philistia, uh, the Philistine area, the Phil Philistia, um, and they are both are two of the great cities of uh, the Philistine area, and we have even those cities are those areas are still existing in today's world, and causing causing problems for Israel. <laughs> um, but he says Ascalon will see it, and Gaza shall see it, and be very sorrowful. Ekron, which is another city of, of Philistia, for her expectation shall be ashamed. What it's saying is they, they did merchandise with Tyre and Sidon. Those, those nations were great merchant nations, and they fell. And this is something that's very interesting, that we look at this world, even our own world, great nations fall all the time when they rebel against God. You know, Tyre and Sidon, nobody ever would have thought that they would have fallen because they were so powerful, at least financially, as well as militarily. And over history, we've seen the same thing happen over and over again, that great, powerful nations fall. And God says he's the one that makes them fall. You know, he's making Sidon and Tyre fall. He's the one that made Rome fall. He's the one that made Greece fall. Um, France fell from its high power you know, for a while. England fell. America will be the newest and the, you know, newest and the one that will fall in the direction that we're headed right now. And we are headed in a direction that will make America fall. But you know, as we look at this, and this is something we need to always be aware of, one of the things that is really getting to me as I listen to the news and all the stuff is the amount of hatred that's out there on both sides of the, on both sides of the political stretch, but even the hatred amongst the churches, drawing lines of hate and in, in, in bitterment, because you've got churches that are very conservative, denominations that are very conservative, denominations that are very liberal, and they are firing off hate at each other. We need to, as Christians, lift up Christ. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in even our country. As great as our country is, and as wonderful as it is to be in our country, our hope is not in this country. Our hope is in God. And we need to lift him up, lift Jesus up, and bring peace I look at all the stuff that's going on and I get excited in many ways because Jesus said when you see these signs 
your redemption draws near, look up, your redemption draws near. Our goal as Christians is not to get amongst all the battles and, the, and all that's going on. Yes, I would love to see our country stay free. I'd love to stay our country stay in existence. But you know, it's not my, what I have my hope in. My hope is in God. And this is the good news for us. He said, I, lo, I return quickly. Now, his definition of quickly and our definition of quickly has not matched up very well, but he is, every day that we get closer to move forward in time, we're, we're closer to, than, to his return than we were when we started. The one thing we know absolutely sure is that all nations will turn against Israel at the end days. That will probably happen very soon. There's already plans in the new administration to basically turn their back on, on Israel and the peace treaties and everything else that had been, been started. They're already talked about it. And all these things must happen. And to have a one world government, the top tier countries have to be collapsed because you're not going to raise up the rest of the world to match the, to match the top. So you must destroy anybody above the bottom and make them as bad as the bottom to have a one world government. It's logical. It's just, I mean, that's not biblical. It's just a logical statement. You cannot bring everybody up and have one world government. You have to bring everybody who's up top and crash them, which is exactly what's happening with our, our expenditures and our, and, our, and our hyperinflation that's going to, going to happen you know, because of the planning, plan spending. And it's even happening in Europe, they're entering into hyperinflation because you've got to bring down the economies of the good, of the high, the high priced countries so that you can have one world government and have everybody quote unquote equal. Uh, and it's a sad place to be. But this is, God brings these things to people. He brings this, he allows it and we go, well, God, why would you allow it? Because he said it's going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's a real simple thing. He said it's going to happen, so we know that it's going to happen. Now, I have never really thought about what it meant to live in those days. <laughs> you know, I was always excited about his coming, coming back, but now that I'm seeing what it means, I kind of go, wow, this is going to be interesting. Backwards and backwards, like in the time of the Bible. Well, I've said it all along. We're, in Christianity, they talk that we're entering into a post-Christian world. And I've said it over and over. We're actually going to a pre-Christian world. We're returning to what we used to be before Christianity changed things. So you want to call it post-Christian, you know, like that, that's fine. It still means the same thing. But we are coming full circle. At Babel... Nimrod had a one-world government. He built a huge tower to heaven so that they could have human sacrifice and, and, and start, their, start their pantheon of God. And he had a pantheon of God of 36 gods. But they are the foundation of all false religion. What did God do? He separated the people by confusing their language and moving them out. Because he goes, they will... Because they are one, they can do whatever they try to do, they will manage. And that one world government fell apart. What has happened in recent years? The language is no longer a barrier. All right? Uh, 
anybody with a cell phone and an app on their cell phone can, can talk to anybody in the world. And have it, the cell phone will actually speak the language for you, much less just write the language. So language is no longer a barrier. We are starting to see the world coalesce back into a one world mentality. All we need now is another Nimrod or Antichrist to come along to bring everybody back together. And you just listen to the language. All the language right now is all about one world, how we have to care for each other, how all these rich nations should be, should be buying the, the uh, vaccine for the poor nations that can't afford to vaccinate their people and it should be just given to them because they can't afford it and, and how we should have open borders and there's no, no such thing as a border, no such thing as a nation. This is, this is what's going on and Trump was a small speed bump in their, in their plans for one world government and it is going to accelerate because this is the direction if you just listen to what's being said on both sides. It's kind of funny to even listen to the conservatives and not real, and they don't even realize what they say half the time about, about the one world government. So it's kind of, it's going to happen, it's going to happen fast. And it'll be one of those things where we just wake up and there'll be pretty much a one world government system. I don't even think it'll be that long, actually, but it's, it's very questionable on what, what's going to happen. But we, as Christians, need to remember one thing. Our job is to evangelize and share Christ, whatever that means for us. Because it's not only, and this is, we talk a lot about the one world government side of it, it's also a one world religion side that is going to be the problem. And they have to strip anything that has absolutes out to have a one world uh, religion. And the ecumenical movement is trying to draw all these churches, all these different religions together and say, well, we all worship the same God. Well, no, we don't. You know, you've got religions out there that have multiple gods and they're not worshiping the same God. You've got poly, you know, polytheistic gods all over the place. You've got all these different monotheistic religions that aren't worshiping the same God because they're, you, know, you look at their God and they're, they have very strange gods. We need to be very careful. Christianity has always been separate for it. Why? Because we're not religion. We're in a relationship with the creator of the universe. And it's not about religion. It's not about good works. And this is what is being pushed by these ecumenical movements. We're all, we're all trying to do good in, in their mindset. And we as Christians need to be careful. As more Christian churches accept the, the falsehood that's being, being pushed, it's going to make things more difficult for the handful, the remnant of Christian churches that hold on to the Bible and say the Bible is true. And it's going to get harder and harder. And there's going to come a place, because if you listen very carefully, the world is talking about how all these Christians, all these conservatives need to be re-educated so that they can be part of the world where the world is moving to. And this is going to be something we have to be very careful of is we need to know God's word. We need to memorize his word. We need to be ready because re-education camps are around the corner for conservatives and for Christians. 
because that's what's being said. Just listen to the language out there. And Satan does not like Christians because we speak against what he's got planned and we're, we, are the, we are the salt and the light that's keeping him from getting everything that he wants accomplished. Now, he doesn't want to have lots of other Christians in there, you know, but you know, our job is to evangelize and lift up the light. The good news for us is the darker the world gets, the brighter our light will shine until Christ takes us home. But the bad news on that bright light is the dark doesn't like the light. The world does not like the light. They will try to extinguish the light. There will be persecution. There will be trials coming our way. All because the end is coming. The end is coming and, you know, and we're going to see all of this come, come through in a very strong way. We're going to see the power of all of this happening. And we need to prepare our hearts. You know, it's going to be hard. How much hard time do we have to go through? I don't know. I do know the church is going to go through trouble. Paul told, Paul told many of his churches, you've got to go through tribulation to show that you belong to Christ. Jesus himself said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. He promised that they were going to be divisions. Christianity brings division. It brings divisions to families. It brings divisions to friends. It brings divisions to people because we have a standard that is not the same as the world. Our standard is God's standard. And it's been a problem. Back in the Tower of Babel, we had Nimrod and we had Eber, two mighty men on both sides, one for God, Eber, and Nimrod for Satan, trying to divide the world. And we've said this before, that the Hebrew people are descendants of Eber, not of Abraham. Abraham's the father of the Jewish people, but not the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people go back to Eber, and they all follow the God of the universe. All right? And we've had the Midianites, when, when, uh, when uh, Moses ended up at the Midianites, they were Hebrew peoples. They were followers of the one God. Uh, and the people of Eber moved all across the world, <laughs> and there are pockets of people that follow the one God. All right? And the true God. Not, not just a one God, but the true God. And we see that over and over. And so we see this process happening that we're following away. And we're seeing the same process that has happened in the past. One small group of people, a remnant that follow God versus the entire world. <laughs> and we need to be prepared through the strength of Christ and the Spirit to stand. But if we're not prepared for tribulation, and this is a, most of the American church is going to fall flat on its face because they've had so much preaching of the prosperity gospel and we've had so much uh, freedom and, and lack of persecution that even strong Christians are going to fall flat on their face because they're not going to be expecting any tribulation even though the Bible tells us that we need to be ready. 
And, you know, I don't know why it's so hard on my heart because I'm beginning to think, like you just said, I think it's very soon that we're going to start facing tribulation. I don't even think it's four years from now. Yeah. Uh, it, it's going to happen that we are going to struggle and be facing persecution in our country that we've never faced persecution before. And we need to be ready. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Verse 6 says, And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod and will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And this means that somebody that's illegitimate, if you don't know what the word means, it means an illegitimate uh, child. In the case of this statement is the Philistines were very proud people. And when uh, Alexander went through, he took and wiped out their royal line and he put a general... (laughs) Or in charge of that area. Uh, most of the time, before, before Alexander the Great came along, most of the time they would let somebody from that country rule and just agree to be vassals uh, until they finally decided to rebel. And Alexander said the heck with this because he knew history. He knew that these people eventually rebelled. He wiped out the royal line and put, it, put in his own people in there to rule these countries. Uh, and totally left out their, their royal line. It says, you, and so from their point of view, an illegitimate individual was going, to, was going to be set up as king and ruler. And not even king, just a ruler, military governor. Uh, and that pretty much has been what's happened ever since. Alexander really changed the way things happen on conquered nations. Uh, Babylon made a big difference too in, in the way they, they conquered people because they would take and they'd conquer and they'd, they'd spend, take their population and spread them all over the world and then bring people back from the, the rest of the world into their place so that they didn't have people that would join together to fight against them either. And in uh, Alexander the Great's case, he just put new, new rulers in and says, I'm not going to worry about any of this. I'm just going to put my own rulers in here. They're, they're, they, they're uh, loyal to me. And so he, he did that. Um, he says, I will take away the blood of his, out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. And he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God. And he shall be as a governor in Judah and Ekron as the Jebusites. So here we're seeing this idea of the Philistines were going to be brought into worship. And God forbade blood. And this is kind of an interesting thing. The Blood out of his mouth. It's very interesting that most of the people that worshipped idols, oftentimes in the sacrifice of the idols, you drank blood. And it was kind of a kind of a cr- crazy idea, uh, but uh, we see this in various places. And God in Leviticus uh, 12, uh, 17 verses 10, 12, and 13 said, "You shall not drink blood." And most people kind of think, well, that was not that big a deal. But God was speaking directly against all these religions that they were going to come across that drank blood. Uh, 17, verses 10, 12, and 13. If you go to Leviticus 17, most of it's about don't, don't drink blood. A lot of it is about don't drink blood. Uh, and this is part of what was done in these worship. And it's kind of very interesting in our day and age... We're seeing this phenomenon come back in a very powerful way. And 
one of the things you're seeing it is in the idea of vampirism. The, there's people who think they're vampires that are drinking blood, and it literally comes from the worship of what they're doing. And there are religions that still drink blood you know, as part of their worship. And for some of them that would that involve human sacrifice, it would be human blood that they would drink, not just animal blood, but they would drink the human blood. And so this is part of what's going on. God says, I'm stopping all of this. And again, we're seeing a return back. You know, we've gotten to the place where we thought we were so superior, we were well beyond idol worship. Idols are coming back with great passion. Many places had never left them. Most of Asia still to this day worships their idols. Uh, Buddhas and all these other things. There's idols all over Asia and through India and all of that where they still worship in front of idols. Much of Africa worships idols and totems or astoroths as we would call them, the, the totem poles, uh, where they would worship. And we see this in many places and, you know, it's very strange that we're seeing these statues floating around Europe and, and America now, and people are starting to worship statues. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to understand. And it says, Ekron shall be as, the Jebus, as a Jebusite. The Jebusites were the people who uh, owned Jerusalem before David took it. All right, when David conquered it, the... Jebusites were kicked out of Jerusalem and who is who he took it away from. And it says, Ekron shall be as those, a defeated nation, in other words. So God is really putting together this whole process and saying, I'm bringing judgment. And bringing judgment over a long period of time, as, as we see here. And then verse 8 puts us back into the future. I will encamp about my house because of the army because of him that passes by and because of him that turneth and no oppressor shall pass through them anymore for now I have seen with mine, with mine eyes. God has so often protected Israel. During the time of Alexander the Great they went to the west of them and came back again to the west of them. Uh, and many times people have passed through but at the very end days Jesus is going to return and he is going to rule from Jerusalem. And they will not have any enemies. For the first time ever in their history, when Jesus reigns, there will not be an enemy against Israel for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, there will be an enemy. You know, but for, for a thousand years, there will not be an enemy to fight against Israel. They will all come to Israel to worship. And if you remember in the last chapter, we talked about how people will grab hold of a Jew and say, take us with this, take us with you to worship. You, we, know, we, we know that you know God. Uh, and that is going to be something bizarre. <laughs> it's never happened in their history. <laughs> and it'll, it'll be a very interesting thing. And God says, I will be their defense. I will protect them. And God has protected his people over and over and over again and given them victories that are hard to imagine. Even in recent years, when Israel was made a new nation, God protected his people over and over again. Bombs not blowing up when they were dropped from airplanes, uh, 
airplane, you know, shooting missiles that just fell out of the sky, entire divisions surrendering to two and three people because they saw more than two or three people as, <laughs> as their enemy. They saw an entire host behind them, and so they'd surrender. Uh, you know, all these things that have happened, and God says, I will defend my children. Just as he defends us as his, as his children, we as Christians are defended. And doesn't mean that nothing bad ever happens to us. Many of God's prophets died unspeakable, horrible deaths. Others, God delivered. Why does God deliver some and let others die? I have no idea. It goes to his glory. Because when people die for Christ, people get touched. This is one of the reasons I really, as hard a book as it is to read, I really recommend Fox's Book of Martyrs because these deaths are still remembered to this day and encourage people to turn to Christ. Even to this day, and really did in the days that they died. Other times, God does supernatural miracles so that people will be recognized, will recognize him. But more often than not, he does not do the miracle to, to rescue us. He just allows death to come. And for us as Christians, do not fear death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, is what Paul told us. He said, I can't, he, Paul at one point said, I'm torn betwixt the two to go to heaven, which is greater, or stay here and teach you all, in a, in a paraphrase. You know, and I understand that. I'm in the same way Paul is. God, I want to go home. Just take me home. But as long as you've got something for me to do and people for me to teach, then I want to be here. The day that I can't teach anymore, I want to be and, and disciple people, then I want to be in heaven. Because it'll be a whole lot better than anything that's going to happen down here. But the new problem is there's always plenty of people down here to disciple and to teach. <laughs> and so even if we were thrown into prison, I would just disciple and teach in the prison. You know, if we're pouring, pour, poured into re-education camps, I'll just be you know, pouring out and discipling people there. It is going to be important for us to reach out and say, God, whatever you want, I'm ready to take whatever you want, to do what you want, to live the way you want me to live, to reach out to people and minister. And it's going to be something that is going to be interesting to see God work. All right, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes unto you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey and upon the coal, colt of a foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariots of Ephraim and the horse from, from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from river even to the ends of the earth. For as you also by the blood of your covenant I have sent forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein there is no water, turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I do, do I declare that I will render double unto you. When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up my sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made thee as a sword of a mighty man. And the Lord shall... Be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as lightning, and the Lord God shall blow the trumpets, 
and shall go with the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue the sling stones, and they shall drink and make noise as though, as though wine, and they shall be filled like bowls and as the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of the crown lifted up as an ensign upon his head. And for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful and new wine the maids. All right. This definitely is the end days when Jesus reigns. This is a picture of the millennial kingdom. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Oh, shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. So this is two times because Zion and Jerusalem are interchangeable. All right. So it says, rejoice greatly and shout. Have you ever been in a place where you've heard a loud shout? I mean, uh, if you've ever gone to a ball game, especially a professional ball game, uh, whether it's soccer, football, basketball, whatever, you know, the shouts can get loud. Um, we lived in Baltimore. We lived about four or five miles from a a college and on Saturday mornings you, you would hear the everybody screaming and hollering about their you know in celebration on the football games you know for four or five miles away you'd hear them yelling right, when we first moved there we moved there early enough for Memorial Stadium which would have been just slightly further Memorial Stadium was home of the Colts and you would hear all kinds of shouts and screams uh, you know of, of excitement uh, from them. Uh, and that was further away. But that was the pro game. God is saying he wants his children to be excited, to be celebrating in that kind of uh, statement. He goes, Behold, your king comes, and he shall be just, or he is just, having salvation, lowly and riding on the donkey, this, the colt and the foal of a donkey. This is what Jesus did symbolically in the triumphant entrance into Egypt and into Jerusalem just before his the week before his crucifixion. He rode a donkey into town and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and, and proclaimed him to be king. Yep, and well that's exactly what it was. And this is Yep. And they put the branches down and they praised him. And this is, this is, but even what he did is the foreshadowing of when he will ride into Jerusalem on his return. All right. And we think, well, why would a king ride on a donkey? Well, this goes back to a very ancient uh, way of thinking. If you came in on a donkey, you were coming in in peace. You weren't coming in as the conquering hero making people follow you. If you rode in on a white charger or a white stallion or whatever, you were coming in I'm saying, I have conquered you, you are mine, and you are now, you know. So this was a humble way. He, he's basically saying, you are mine. I, I don't have to conquer you. You are mine. And so when he comes in, when he comes in, when Israel is surrounded by the Antichrist and the world's armies, and Jesus descends from the heaven, and he speaks a word and destroys the armies, 
he gets to come into Jerusalem meekly, not with humbling, not with, a, with victorious, this is my conquered country. And, and Zechariah is going to tell us that they look upon him and they finally recognize who he is. Or they haven't got there yet, but they're going to recognize who he is. And they're going to say, where did you get these wounds? And he's, just, and he's not going to chastise them. He says, I got them from a friend. Do you hear the love that Christ has, even for the Jewish people, even to that point? My friends did this to me. Yeah. And it's not a hatred, it's not a bitterness. He says, these are the wounds of a friend. Because he loved us. See, those wounds were what bought us. You know, even us. And I don't know how long Jesus is going to hold those wounds through all of eternity. If all of eternity. But he's seen even in heaven as the lamb slain. You know, and I don't know if he's going to hold those wounds forever showing his great love to us. I don't know how we could not have tears <laughs> if he holds those wounds. But to see the cost of our salvation, the cost of what it took to get us there, is, you know, now we could end up with tears of joy. Now, tears of joy may not be the same thing as yeah. tears in the, in the scripture. Because when we look at them, it will bring, wow, God, you, you did that for me. You, you, you suffered that greatly so that I could be in eternity with you. And I don't know. It's hard. I, I agree. It's going to be very hard to understand you know, how I could look at him with all the scars and realize that everything is perfect in there except for him. And we don't know. We don't know. And again, how will we see things in heaven? We're going to see things totally different in heaven anyway. We're just, we might just see the great love that he shed for us, not, not the pain behind the, the scars and, the, and the, the cost of the scars. We might just see the great love at the scars. Or he could be totally made perfect at the new creation and we don't think about it at all. Yeah, because he wants no sadness, too. Yeah, no, no more sadness. Yep. Then verse 10, and he will cut off the chariots of the Ephraim and the horses of Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from river even to the ends of the earth. The millennial kingdom will be a period of peace. No enemies. He will dismantle the, the army that he has because he doesn't need an army. He will... And I love this. He will speak peace unto the heathen. All people will be spoken to with peace. This is the first time I've noticed this. Ephraim is uh, another word for Israel. Another word for Israel. How did that come about? Ephraim is one of the children of Joseph, who became a tribe of, of Israel. And Ephraim is, is a poetic side of it and usually referring to the non-righteous side of Israel. It's kind of much like the northern kingdom of Israel. But why so, them instead of any of the others? Probably because Joseph ended up with a double portion in the tribes of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
And why Ephraim, I have no idea. I don't really, I've never really thought about studying why Ephraim gets named. Uh, but I'm going to hazard a guess that I'll have to re look into that if I look into prophecy of Jacob over Joseph's sons, Ephraim probably has something in that, in that uh, prophecy that would answer that question, which is where I'm going to start when I look at it. If and when I look it up, I'll start there. Uh, okay, let's see. Uh, he will speak peace to the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from river even to the ends of the earth. So in this case, he's referring to the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee and beyond. But, but he's also going from for the entire ends of the earth. When Jesus reigns, he will be the one world government that Satan keeps trying to uh, counterfeit. He tried to counterfeit it with Nimrod. He's tried to counterfeit it with uh, Alexander the Great, with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, over and over again, he keeps trying to counterfeit. The German, Germany under Hitler, their goal was to create the Third Reich and have a thousand-year reign, right straight out of Scripture. He was saying, I'm the Messiah, follow me, and I'm going to give us a thousand years of peace, and we will reign, reign over the world. Hitler was an antichrist. All right? He wasn't the Antichrist, but he was a Antichrist. I am your Messiah. I am the one that's going to rescue, rescue the world. And over and over again, we've seen these groups, that, these people that come up. They're going to be the, the Messiah of the world. They're going to be the, the rescuer. And most of them don't call themselves the Christ, but you know, their, their goal is to rescue. Why would this be? And I heard somebody interesting say this, and I, and I think I agree with it. Satan doesn't know when Christ is returning. He doesn't know when the tribulation period start, is going to start. So he always has to have somebody in the wings who is an antichrist, who is evil enough to be the next ruler, that, and eventually one of them will be the ruler that he will inhabit and take over. Uh, so we've had many over the years of people that have stood up. You know, I'm, I'm the leader. I'm the rescuer of the world. Follow me. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to usher in peace. And they have not done it. All they've done is bring in disaster. But one day, there's going to be somebody that steps up who is going to be the Antichrist of the end days. And they will consolidate everybody in. And we're now in a place where we're seeing that consolidation come in. And the point that we want to look at is who's the leader that's going to stand up. And we don't know. We don't know who that leader is. I don't see anybody on that front that's that bad right now. But even in this, we're not, the Antichrist is not going to look bad when he first comes to power. He's a man of peace. Israel makes an agreement and signs an agreement with them, and they get to build their temple. He's going to look like a nice guy. You know, and Hitler, and most people don't know this, but Hitler was elected chancellor by a vote of 70% of the population of Germany before, just a few years later, declaring himself to be the Fuhrer. You know, he was elected into his position and then took advantage of some bad things that happened and decided that he was now the head of the, head of the country and head of the world, the new world order. 
This is what's going to happen when the Antichrist comes. He's going to look. He's going to, he's going to be able to make great deals with Israel. He's going to be able to bring peace and apparent peace. And everything is going to fall apart in very quick order. So when you see somebody that's bringing peace to everybody around the world, you, you, we're looking at the Antichrist most likely. He's going to look good. He's going to trick people into thinking that he's the greatest thing that's ever hit this world. And if we're not careful, we can fall for it. The world is going to fall for him. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to be, he's going to be looking good. He's going to be trying to bring what sounds like peace. The words are going to sound good to those who don't know. Don't know. And it'll be the dawning of the, of the tribulation and the rapture. So we're looking forward to the day, but we don't know who it's going to be. And he's not going to, he, even though he's evil incarnate, he's not going to look evil when he first comes in. And this is kind of an interesting thing. If you, you know, I can remember, you know, I used to be in the vampire movies, you know, Count Dracula. Count Dracula never looked like the evil, awful guy until he, until he actually executed people with his, you know. But he was the charming host that everybody, everybody loved in all the movies. Uh, this is the way the Antichrist will be. He'll be the charming host that everybody loves until his true colors get shown. And then all hell will break loose on earth. So we see here, uh, that, and in verse 11 after that it says, For you also, by the blood of your, of your covenant, I have sent you forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein there is no water. God has redeemed prisoners of sin. And this is something we have to remember. Before we are saved, we are prisoners of sin. And we cannot do anything but sin. We really can't. We may have our good periods of time, but usually that's even tainted because we're, we're trying to show off how good we are and how you know, magnanimous I am and all this other stuff. You know, how, you know, trying to show off how humble I am by not, you know, not pushing myself forward, whatever it might be. And he says, my blood, the blood of your covenant, his covenant, I've sent forth prisoners out to a place where there is no water. The water is the Holy Spirit. All right? So when we're prisoners, we have no water. The Holy Spirit isn't ministering to us. There's dryness. When we get saved... The Holy Spirit comes in and, and dwells inside of us and waters our life and brings forth life from that water. And the blood of Jesus Christ allows that to happen. He paid for the sins so that the Holy Spirit can indwell us and then give us life. And this is the beauty of it. How do we get victory over sin? Because the Holy Spirit dwells inside us and changes who we are. And he is our victory. It's not me trying to strive to do good. It's not me trying to strive to get rid of the sin in my life. This is where Galatians 2.20 goes, For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live according to the faith of Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He changes who we are. He gives us the power to be victorious. And this is the beauty of Christianity. Christianity is not me, like every other religion, trying to do good works. It's me surrendering to God and letting God change me from the inside out, like the song we sing so often. 
He changes me from the inside. It's not me outwardly changing so that I get to be changed on the inside. God comes in, changes me from the inside, and then he flows out of me so that I'm being totally changed. And this is the beauty of what is going to happen with it. And then verse 12 says, Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of of hope. Even today I do declare that I will render double unto you. And this is kind of an interesting statement. Uh, Prisoners of hope. Hope in what? Hope in God? You know, what, what, you know, and it's kind of an interesting statement. Prisoners of hope. Uh, But you know, one of my things that I look at is I so fully trust in God that my whole hope is on him. If he is not my hope, I'm in trouble. You know, and... Everything I do is geared toward looking to him. What does God say? Standing on his word, being obedient to his word. And you know, if, I'm, if I want to describe myself, I want to describe myself as a prisoner of hope, or as Paul said, a prisoner of Christ, a servant of Christ. Uh, and it says, and I love this, I do declare that I will render double to you. He's going to give us double what we even expect, you know. Uh, and sometimes we think, you know, oftentimes we always think of all the bad things, you know. And, but, you know, God wants to give us double blessings as well. And this is something we have to grab hold of. We limit God's blessing on us so much by not, not seeking the blessing. And I'm not trying to say God's, a, you, know, you know, sugar daddy up there just saying, I want to give you stuff. But he does want to give us things. And we have to walk this fine line between the idea of prosperity gospel that God always blesses, always blesses from the idea, the other extreme on that is that God is this, you know, tight-fisted, you know, mean person who doesn't want to give us anything. You know, we need to be sitting in the middle of that area. God loves us. He's a good father that wants to bless us. And he wants to bless us more than we can even imagine. And not so much that we're saying, well, God is just a you know, vending machine. You know, here's my prayer, God. Give me, give, me, give me what I asked for. But he does want to bless. And we're going to see these blessings when we open our eyes and we say, God, show me. And I think if we really look at our life and see all that God does for us, it's pretty amazing. How often does he help us make sure that our bills are paid, that we have food on the table, that we have a roof over our heads, we, that we have his, an opportunity to hear his word and all these different things that we have. And he's just saying, I'm there. I want to give. I want to provide. Verse 13 says, When I have bent Judah for me and filled the bow of Ephraim and raised the sons of Zion against the sons of your sons, O Greece, and made you as, a, made you as the sword of a mighty man, and the Lord is seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as lightning, and the Lord God shall blow the trumpets and shall go with a whirlwind to the south. Talking about God as a warrior. <laughs> All right. Very clearly on here he says, I have bent Judah. This is the idea of bending the bow. I don't know if anybody's ever done any archery, but uh, trying, to, trying to bend the bend a bow... Uh, Pretty easy nowadays with compound bows, but back in the days of recurve, 
Back in the days of recurved bows, you had to put it behind one foot over your knee and you bent this bow and strung the, strung the cord on it. And if you had a heavy bow, that was, that was a lot of job. <laughs> uh, I used to enjoy doing it. I, and I had a 60-pound bow at that time. And it was not 60 pounds in weight, but a 60-pound pressure. And it was, you know, you had to pull that thing and pull it and pull it and then put your string on it. And, you know, and God says, I'm going to bend Ephraim in the bow. He's going to, and he's going to ray and he's going to fill the bow with Ephraim. So Ephraim are going to be the arrows. <laughs> so this is kind of an interesting picture. He's, he's using Israel and saying they are going to be my warriors at this point in time. Now, when Jesus comes down, the description we get in Revelation, he just speaks a word and the battle's over. So I think this is a lot very figurative in this as well, because who's the bow in this case? Is Jesus, Judah, the king. The king comes from Judah, and he steps down and the battle's over. So the king steps down and he says, it is, it is done, and he defeats. And in this case, he defeated Greece when, when Alexander was in that area. He defeated Alexander, never came into Israel. And Greece in this place is being a picture of all Gentiles. <laughs> all Gentiles are being pictured by, by Greece. Because Jesus comes and he says, I'm bringing peace. I'm going to conquer the world. And this is the picture in Revelation. The world is coming against Israel at that time. And the world will come against Jesus when, when Satan is released at the end of the millennial kingdom to build a coalition for the world to come against Jesus. One last time. Satan gets one last crack at trying to defeat, defeat God. And he's going to trick many people into following him. And you go, well, how can people be tricked? They've had a thousand years of peace and they're going to be tricked into being, being obedient. I really do think this will be because Jesus is ruling with an iron scepter and people still have a sin nature during that period of time and he's not going to allow them to live according to their sin nature. No violence, no, no, nothing that would be a bad thing will be allowed to happen. And yet people want to. And then they will, when Satan comes back, they're going, yeah, we're, we, we're, ready, we're ready to fight. We're, we're ready. We're ready to go against this guy who's been making us be good. You know, and it won't be quite that clear, but you understand what I'm saying. You know, he's made us be, be good. And you know, it's kind of interesting when you, when you find people who want to do bad, oftentimes they don't want to be made to do good. They don't want to be made to drive the speed limit. They don't want to be made to not steal. They don't want to be made to not use drugs, alcohol, whatever, whatever it is that they're, they're wanting to do. Jesus is ruling with an iron scepter. And when they get the opportunity after a thousand years, they're going to be, yeah, let us, let us win. We're, we're going to win this battle against him. Because now that they're not having somebody you know, stopping them immediately. Satanists actually have some power to be able to build an army. Now, a thousand years, isn't it like ten generations? Almost. Say they lived a hundred years apiece. No, if they lived a hundred years, it'd be ten generations. Yeah. But we're told in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah, that if a person dies at a hundred, he's a child. 
So during the millennial kingdom, there's every appearance that people are living to be three, four, five, six hundred, seven hundred years. Back to the, back to the way, way it was supposed to be. Uh, God is returning during the millennial kingdom. He's going to return it to an almost paradise. It won't be perfect because people have sin natures. But at that period of time, he says, the child will lay down with the, will play at the nest of the asp and the lion will lay down with the, with the, with the uh, lamb. Uh, so we're seeing all of, as close to Eden as possible with a sin nature. All right. Uh, so it's going to be a very, very strange time. Yeah, I never even actually thought about it, but yeah, it would be returning. It would be turning, returning beyond tribulation. Would be the one world government, and then returning back to a temporary paradise situation. Uh, and then at the end, Satan tries one more time to reign, and then the white throne judgment. The world is destroyed, and a new heaven and new earth is put together. So yeah, I never even thought about that other half of it that we will be returning back to paradise, uh, a paradise situation. All right, I want to just take these last two verses. And the Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall de- devour and subdue with sling and stones, and they shall drink and make noise as, as the wine, and they shall be filled with bowls and as the corners of the altar. So God will allow them. And this is, I believe this is talking about the last big battle at the end of the, tribu- at the, end of the millennial kingdom. That they're going to take a stance against them. Now, this battle is going to be God. Because Revelation tells us, again, he just speaks. Trying to fight God is a losing battle. You know, there's armies arrayed against each other. And it talks about slings and stones and stuff. And I literally do believe it'll be slings and stones. After a thousand years of peace, there won't be machine guns and, and all of that. Uh, but all of a sudden, in the middle of the battle, God speaks and the battle's over. Yeah. He is that powerful. He just speaks. He speaks, and the armies surrounding Jerusalem are defeated. The last battle, he speaks, and the war's over. This is one of the things you just, I can't picture. Satan knows the power of God. He was there from all apparent studies at the moment of creation and knows the power of God's speech. He has seen the miracles when God speaks, and yet he keeps thinking he can defeat God. And he knows better. It's bad enough for us as human beings that you know, we theoretically, by reading God's word, understand the power of his speech. But we, don't, we have never seen the power of his speech directly. Now, we see his miracles all, all the time. We see them all around us and to see the small miracles that he does. But God's power at creation was seen. Satan saw his power at the resurrection when he just spoke and says, come back. You know, all of this stuff. And it says, verse 16, And the Lord their God will save them in that day and the flock as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of the crown lifted up in the ensign on his head. His people will be his glory. They will be the decorative, uh, just as the crown on on a king's head. His people will be his decoration. 
And I don't, you know, sometimes I wonder what God sees in us, but he sees us as precious. He sees us as, as wonderful, the crown of his head. And I don't know. I don't, I don't see myself in that way with, with God. And yet God so often says that's the way he sees us. He sees us as precious. He sees us as worth so much more than we see ourselves as worth. And he says, I am going to reach out. I am going to, I am going to save my people and they shall be the decoration of my crown. And, you know, I don't understand. And then I love this last, for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. God's goodness, his beauty. Oh, that we could learn to see God's greatness and his beauty and be able to just fully understand how beautiful God is. Not just in physical beauty, spiritual beauty, but you know, how does he make us feel as a people? He gives us so much peace. He gives us so much joy. He gives us so much confidence when we trust in him. Huh? He gives us so much grace. And grace, yeah. yeah. <laughs> gives us the grace, gives us mercy. And all of these things, and he is beautiful. He is magnificent. And it says, corn shall make the young men cheerful and new wine the maids. And he's talking about the idea of being rejoicing in the celebration. And in this case, he is talking about alcohol, corn, corn and wine. How do people act when they get endued with alcohol there's a freedom and sometimes they would agree there's joy now it's short-lived <laughs> and he says but because of my greatness they shall be like this what did paul uh, what did uh, peter say to the people when they said you guys are drunk he goes no we we have this holy spirit you know you may think we're acting crazy and uninhibited and 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 making these, these things go forward, he goes, but we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit should give us joy, should give us the ability to speak out and talk and do much of what Satan has copied, you know, counterfeited with alcohol and destructive features of it. God says, I want you to have the good side, the real side of it. The idea that you are free, that you are filled with, filled with something that has power. And why do so many people get into alcohol? You hear it in their testimony. It made me feel uninhibited. It made me feel strong. And it, it took away my problems for a very short period of time until you got addicted to it. <laughs> the Holy Spirit does the same things for us. It can give us the ability to speak out. It can take away, take away our problems, except that because it's from God... It's not temporary and it's not deficient. Satan's counterfeits always are a shadow of what God gives us. And Satan always counterfeits everything. If God has something out there, Satan has a counterfeit or, or even two or three or four. He always counterfeits what God does. And his counterfeits are never good. So... Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, teach us to trust. Lord, teach us to love and to look up to your salvation. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.